You are listening to Crosstalk. A safe place to discuss addiction, recovery, harm reduction, and everything in between. Support for this podcast comes from the Kentucky Opioid Response Effort and Advocates of Recovery. Content and production by the team at Turning Point Recovery Community Center. Now, buckle up and get ready for the show. Welcome everyone to Crosstalk Recovery, the recovery podcast that supports all forms of recovery. I'm Matt Lewis, and I'm here with, well, no one. Uh, in the last podcast, we talked about wanting to do a podcast about the Overdose Awareness Day that we had. And we decided that instead of doing that, we're just going to show you the whole event so you can experience it for yourself. So, enjoy. All right, welcome everybody. My name is Brandon Fitch. I am the director of Turning Point Recovery Community Center here in Paducah, Kentucky. But most importantly, I'm a person in long-term recovery. First, I want to thank you all for being here today. It is so important to see a community that supports this cause and supports people in recovery. And how about a special shout out to the sponsors of Turning Point's first annual recovery walk this past June. We've got the Regional Prevention Center and Four Rivers Behavioral Health, Kentucky Care, a partnership for better health, the Kim Musgrave team, she's in the front row right here. I, I the Graves County Exchange Program, the Purchase District Health Department, Opioid Task Force, and so many more. Today, August 31st, is International Overdose Awareness Day. Once a year on this day, we pause to remember those that we have lost to the tragedy of overdose. So many of us are left with questions that we don't have the answers to. Could we have done something else? Could we have done more for them? Let us not be confused, it was not your fault. But let us not also be confused. Overdose does not care how old you are. It does not care how young you are. It most certainly does not care if you are using drugs for the first time or the 101st time. Overdose is only invested in the fact that it is your last time. Drugs and other substances are more addictive today than they have ever been in history. The experimental phase is nearly non-existent. 2,250. Look at these t-shirts. 2,250. That is the number of lives lost to overdose last year. That's a huge number. That's a 14.5% increase from the previous year. And fentanyl is responsible for over 70% of those fatalities. And even though we have seen an increase in our state, progress has been made in our area. In McCracken County, we have seen more than 40% decrease in fatal overdoses in McCracken County. That is awesome. And I believe 100% that that is all a result of the hard work of our first responders, EMS, law enforcement, 
outreach programs, Narcan distribution, and expanded treatment options. So good job. Good job, McCracken County. Yeah. Although a 40% decrease in our county is wonderful news, we are watching the number of fatal and non-fatal overdoses in our region grow. We have seen the number of fatal overdoses in neighboring counties double. You see, for the past year, in fact, last year, we made a partnership with McCracken County Sheriff's Office and the Mayfield Police Department. And we have seen great success with our quick response team where we respond to overdose survivors. And after seeing these overdose spikes in our region, we knew that we must do more. So today, I'm honored to announce that Turning Point's quick response team has partnered with Mercy Regional EMS here in McCracken County, the Marshall County Sheriff's Office, and the Benton Police Department, where overdose numbers are rising. That is awesome news right there. This means that partnership will allow first responders and peer support specialists the ability to visit overdose survivors further into our region within a 24-hour to 72-hour window, offering them support, treatment options, and most importantly, hope. You see, prevention, harm reduction, education, and treatment work. If you have the opportunity to go to any of these tables, pick up the material. Look at these options. They save lives. But first, but first, as a community, we have to talk about the reality of the disease. We must have the discussion as a community. We must destigmatize asking for help. We must destigmatize accepting help before it is too late. Asking for and accepting help takes strength. It does not make you weak, it makes you courageous. You see, several years ago, I accepted help. And several years ago, I was told that you should work in recovery. They said it would change my life. While working with people in recovery, you get to meet so many beautiful and amazing people. But we lose too many beautiful and amazing people. So to the mothers, the fathers, the families and friends, your loss is not in vain. They are the fuel that drives us. They are the reason that we do what we do. They are with us when we visit overdose survivors. They are with us when we take that person to treatment. And they are with us when we comfort the families who are seeking support. So let us remember them with beautiful thoughts and memories. Let us hold on to those who are still struggling, who need us more than ever. And let us celebrate those who have made it through to another day. And on this day and every day forward, Let's bring awareness to this epidemic that leaves so many feeling broken. If you or someone you know is struggling, please know two things. You are not alone, and your community has your back. And let's give another round of applause to these first responders out there. The work you do most certainly saves lives, provides hope, and ensures that our community has the tools necessary to fight the battle of substance use disorder. It's amazing work. So at this point, I get the pleasure and the opportunity to introduce our next speaker.
I got the opportunity to meet him last year at this event, and from that point forward, we had a wonderful collaboration. We've been working hard to address this issue. Your Sheriff of McCracken County, Ryan Norman. I don't know if I can really add much a lot to uh, what Brandon said, but uh, thank you all for coming here tonight. Uh, it's good to be here and I appreciate the invitation to speak here. Uh, I know uh, it's probably for some people here, it's a little different to see law enforcement on this side and, and trying to help uh, speaking with Brandon, uh, some, of the, some of the experiences that people have. Um, and <clears throat> that's why we're here, because uh, we're here to help. And I'm going to speak a little bit about some of the programs uh, and how we are showing that and how we want to uh, help make our community better. Um, I feel that being from law enforcement, I'm in a fairly unique position uh, within the group of individuals uh, attending uh, tonight. Historically, like I said, law enforcement has uh, just enforced the law. And many people view those of us in law enforcement as just trying to take people to jail. Uh, while that's obviously a necessary part of our job, um, we are also here to help people, help the community, and help make McCracken um, <clears throat> County even a better place to live, work, and raise our children. I believe that we as law enforcement have a threefold mission within our response to the opioid crisis. Uh, the most obvious is the enforcement of law, but it goes further. Uh, we also have to help educate uh, in prevention, intervention, and in recovery. Uh, utilizing those three facets, we will help reach our ultimate goals, which is to save lives. <clears throat> Overdoses are unfortunately an everyday occurrence in our community. Uh, very few lives have not been affected by an overdose of some kind. Uh, you just go out on the streets, there's people that everywhere you go have been affected somehow in their lives by an overdose. Uh, but I believe that with education and outreach efforts, uh, we can continue to reduce the overdoses that we see in our community and beyond. Based on uh, Brandon's numbers, I believe we've made a good step forward here in McCracken County, and we need to continue uh, that trend and uh, keep working and expand it to other counties. Uh, the Sheriff's Office is proud to partner with several organizations that are here, uh, like Brandon stated, Turning Point, uh, Spiro Health, as well as the Purchase Health Department. Uh, by utilizing these partnerships, we hope to be able to bring treatment to those with substance abuse disorders instead of waiting for them to seek treatment. We want to be proactive in our efforts. In these partnerships, we have expanded our Badges of Hope program. Uh, this program, which began in 2018, helps those who need treatment for substance abuse find the proper treatment center. It also <clears throat> allows the Sheriff's Office to be a face of hope and helps promote the fact that we care about our community, not about making arrests. For years, law enforcement has faced situations where someone wanted assistance with substance abuse disorder and we didn't have a good answer. Now we do, thanks to the, par the partnerships that we've been able to develop. Um, we've also, like Brandon said, we partnered with Turning Point and their quick reaction team. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, uh, when we have an overdose in our area, we team up with Turning Point counselors to meet the overdose victim and at a minimum get information to them regarding their options for treatment. The ultimate goal is to get that person in a treatment and to prevent another overdose. Uh, we also not, not only involved in carrying Narcan ourselves, but promoting the communi community's use and availability as Narcan as a safety net. 
our goal is to simply help save lives uh, with the support of the uh, people of the community and the people that are here tonight. Uh, we can continue to make progress in raising awareness of overdoses and hopefully one day be able to say that we reduce dependency and overdoses. And as Brandon and I have discussed in the past, we want to go out and meet people where they need the help and offer that help to them. And, and if we can be that bridge with these other entities, that's what we're going to do. Thank you all for your uh, for coming here tonight and for your attention. Yeah. Just a couple of things. Uh, Sheriff Norman has been um, instrumental in, in, in moving forward with that quick response team. And we want to thank him so much. I, I've, uh, of course, me as a person with lived experience working with somebody in law enforcement was a little scary first, but he is the most kind and caring individual that I've met. They actually put forth a lot of effort into reaching out to us on how we can uh, uh, attack a situation before it gets to the point where that person is having to uh, be jailed. So it's amazing how they how they uh, care about uh, our community. And one quick thing too, uh, I forgot to mention a moment ago, is when our speakers finish, because you don't want to hear them anymore after that, um, we will be making our way to the parking lot. We have balloons. They are biodegradable balloons with biodegradable string. Uh, we put forth that extra effort to make sure. Um, so that being said, we'll make our way out to the parking lot um, and release the balloons in memory of our loved ones uh, uh, tonight. So. Uh, without any further ado, uh, I will introduce our next speaker, uh, McCracken County Coroner, Amanda Melton. Thank you, Brandon. Hello, uh, my name is Amanda Melton and I am the McCracken County Coroner. I'm grateful to be here today and to be asked to speak to you all during International Overdose Awareness Day. Every one of Kentucky's 120 counties elects a coroner. And to understand the job of the coroner in simple terms, we are death investigators and we are tasked with the grim responsibility of determining the cause and manner of death. In 2021, seven of those deaths in McCracken County were determined to be from accidental overdose. This report that I'm holding is called toxicology. It's an important investigative tool which helps us to classify death when drugs and other substances are involved. This report though, doesn't tell the whole story, only the scientific analysis of what for many is a very complex and complicated journey. And many of you here tonight understand this all too well. A little personal story, um, throughout my life, we celebrated the birthday of my late grandmother, affectionately known as Mama Ruth, not on her birthday of December the 7th, but on her AA birthday. For over 40 years, she was a dedicated sponsor to many in our community in Tennessee and she attended multiple meetings each week. She proudly told her story about the grips of alcoholism and how her career as a nurse put her in the midst of prescription drugs that she herself had once used for comfort and relief. She earned and displayed her sobriety coins. As a teenager though, I tried and failed to understand her journey. I'm honestly still ashamed of that to this day. 
You know, who wants to disappoint your grandmother, right? Well, I did, and it was because I questioned her decision to let a former classmate of mine sleep on her couch one night. This classmate, in my opinion, was difficult and sullen and hostile and unpredictable, and honestly, she made me nervous and I was scared of her. But Mama Ruth informed me, as only a grandmother can do, you know, just kind of cutting right to the root of the issue, that number one, she was the adult in the room. And number two, her commitment to sponsorship knew no boundaries. That meant going in the middle of the night to retrieve someone, and that meant letting someone sleep on her couch. Number three, she saw worth in my classmate that I had not tried to see. And number four, the journey of both my grandmother and my classmate was a complex and complicated journey. But it was through Mama Ruth and inadvertently my classmate that I learned about the complex and complicated journey of substance use disorder. It was through Mama Ruth that I learned about the importance of a team, a tribe, a group of supporters, and a village. I hope tonight as you're here, you see and feel the village. You see, years ago, substance use disorder was only whispered about. It was spoken in hushed tones in the dark secret corner that nobody could see or hear. And it was also spoken about with a certain hint of denial. But we have come a really long way. Assembled here right now are agencies, family members, community members, media, and individuals who want to love and support you on your journey. And I, as McCracken County Coroner, as a citizen of this county, and as a direct descendant of Mama Ruth, I wish you the very best life has to offer. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda, for sharing that very personal and powerful story. Uh, next up, Cynthia Turner from Four Rivers Regional Prevention Center. Thank you, Brandon. Good evening. My name is Cynthia Turner, and I am the site administrator of our Four Rivers Regional Prevention Center located at Four Rivers Behavioral Health. We are responsible for substance misuse and suicide prevention for our nine most western counties of Kentucky. All of the regional prevention centers in Kentucky are under the Kentucky Department of Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion Branch. And a large part of what we do does lie in delaying the onset of use in our young people, as well as encouraging parents and guardians to have these conversations with them early and often about substance use. But however, we are able to do some harm reduction work um, and stigma reduction work as well. We do this by working to break the stigma surrounding substance use disorders and harm reduction efforts that help prevent overdose deaths in this region through our state opioid response grant. Our stigma reduction work educates and encourages community members to see that a substance use disorder is a brain disease and not a moral failing. Just as with any non-terminal physical disease, people can and do recover. Sometimes it takes multiple tries and there are multiple pathways towards recovery. We also promote the Food and Drug Administration's Remove the Risk campaign that encourages not sharing your opioid prescription with anyone else, storing and locking up your prescription medications, 
and safely disposing them, safely disposing of them when there is no longer a need or other alternative pain management technique is used. Reducing access by locking up medications and safely disposing of them is one of the biggest harm reduction efforts that we can do, along with getting Narcan and fentanyl test strips into our community. We are very fortunate that there are several different organizations in our region that are all working towards the same goal, many of whom are here tonight. And that overall goal being ending over overdose deaths in our region because they are preventable and recovery is possible. Events like these allow us to honor those who have been lost to an overdose, as well as give hope towards a future without overdose deaths. And for friends and families of those currently living with an opioid use disorder. When prevention, treatment, and recovery all work together, we all win. Thank you. And now I have the pleasure of introducing my lovely friend who wears many different hats for our community, one of those being the network director of our opioid task force, Caitlin Kolakowski. Yeah. Hi, I'm Caitlin Polakowski. I'm with the Purchase District Health Department, and it is my pleasure to be here today. Everyone before me has done such amazing speeches, and so I'm going to mix it up a little bit, and everyone is going to get a Narcan training. I had a lot of different people walk by and say, oh, I can't have that, but you know, you might be in a situation at some point where you're going to see Narcan, and you really need to know how to use that. Um, and so we will just get started with that right away. A couple of the things I did want to talk to you about was what increases your risk of an overdose. There's a couple of different things that increases the risk of an overdose. It's having overdose within the past year. Um, I'm sorry, I have this listed. Uh, using benzos, alcohol, stimulants, and opioids together. So if you use a bunch of different drugs together, that increases your risk. Using fentanyl increases your risk. And abstinence for an extended period of time. Because you think that your tolerance is the same, your tolerance is not the same. A lot of people go back to what they were using previously, and your body just cannot handle it. And so I'm just going to give you a very quick Narcan training here, and then talk about a couple of our other things. So this is Narcan. We have Narcan there. There's Narcan all over our community. Just like Cynthia said, we are not the only providers of Narcan. Um, we also have a Narcan training online. So one of the ways that, well, really the way that you identify that someone has an overdose, is blue fingertips, they are unresponsive, not breathing, pinpoint pupils, kind of cold and clammy skin. Go up to them, do a sternal rub. It hurts. They should respond. Call 911. The Good Samaritan Law in the state of Kentucky protects you when you call 911 in an overdose situation. You will not be prosecuted for calling 911 in an overdose situation. That is always your first and foremost. Narcan works on everybody. The only thing that it does is reverse an opioid overdose. You can use it on infants, you can use it on dogs, you can use it on people. So after you have identified that someone has an over, they're in an overdose state and you have called 911, roll them on their back, make sure there is nothing in their mouth, tilt their chin up, take the Narcan and you put it in their nose. Depress the whole thing only once it's in the nostril. After that, you're gonna roll them over into the recovery position Wait one to two minutes. If they have not started to respond or stir in any way, roll them on their back and do the other one. You can do rescue breathing, but it is not necessary. Um, it's helpful. It's definitely very helpful, but it is not necessary for Narcan to work 
A lot of people are very hesitant because of all of the infectious disease that we see. So don't let that stop you from administering Narcan to someone. The most important thing is that they actually get the Narcan. So we have Narcan over there if you would like it. Um, the other thing that I really wanted to stress to people that's about Narcan is we have started an overdose spike alert. Please sign up for this. You do not have to provide your name. We just need your email and your phone number. And if we are aware that there is an overdose spike in our region, you will get notification from us that there is a spike, what the suspected drug is, if we know, and where to get Narcan and fentanyl test strips. We also have fentanyl test strips. Um, so please take advantage of all of the resources in our community that everyone has. Um, and so just a couple things, like on the stat side, um, everyone you know, really responds to stats. Um, okay, so in our region, which includes the purchase area plus line, there were 34 deaths by overdose from January to December 2021. We had 325 emergency department visits for non-fatal overdoses, 239 inpatient hospitalizations for non-fatal drug overdoses, uh, 167 emergency medical services um, for suspected overdoses. So a lot of people think that harm reduction and recovery are different. Harm reduction is recovery. Dead people don't recover. Make sure to carry Narcan, you know, and that's really just all I have to say. Oh, and thank you. <laughs> thank you, Caitlin. I think I got a new pen now too, so. So that's that's really helpful information. They've got Narcan, we've got Narcan, fentanyl test strips, and there's plenty here. If if we run out, all you gotta do is let us know. We can give you some. If you have arrived here at this event, that means that addiction, substance use disorder, overdose has affected your life. And if it has affected your life, that means you may be around other people that it might affect. So you could save a life with these tools. So the next person I get to introduce today. Um, is the, the site administrator for Centerpoint Recovery Center for Men. He has a, a close spot in my heart uh, because I got to work uh, with him, uh, for him at one point, and uh, he was at the treatment program that I got to go through, and he was a huge inspiration to me. Max Grantham. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Good evening, everyone. How y'all doing? Man, it's great to see this many people out at a recovery event. I am Max Grantham. I'm in, I am the site administrator at Center Point Recovery Center for Men. And I'm also a person in long-term recovery. Uh, for me, that means that I haven't used illicit drugs or alcohol since January 23rd of 2010. And that might seem like quite some time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I will tell you I was in, embattled in alcoholism and addiction for about 38 years. So the biggest part of my life, I was troubled with alcoholism and addiction. Uh, I lost relationships, jobs, and ultimately I lost my freedom. And then I got the opportunity to come to Centerpoint Recovery Center for Men. Yes, I, I'm an alumni of Centerpoint as well. And it changed my life. Uh, while I was there, I made a decision to turn my life around. And it... Uh, I have the honor and the privilege now of helping others who suffer with the same problems I suffered from, substance use disorder. Uh, I've had numerous jobs in my life because of my alcoholism and addiction. I've, I've been everything from a taxi driver to an underwater welder. 
It took them about 20 minutes to figure out I couldn't even weld, much less underwater. So, so not only has Four Rivers Behavioral Health and, and Centerpoint gave me a job, it, it's given me a purpose. And uh, that's something I never had before. Uh, and it's been such a blessing. And uh, recovery has changed so much as I've, as I've watched through my years, you know, uh, like the coroner was talking about it, used to as it was a very hushed subject. No one wanted to even acknowledge it. Uh, even a family member didn't want to acknowledge that their loved one had a problem with alcohol or drugs. And it's, it, and it's beginning to change. I watched the stigma be reduced. Uh, I watched the approaches to addressing substance use disorder be changed. But you know, uh, I talked about that decision I made earlier. And what weighs really heavy on my heart is the thousands of people that don't have the opportunity to make that decision, that aren't, that, that will never have the opportunity to make that decision. And, and I think today it's as a direct result of fentanyl. Uh, Fentanyl is in so many illicit drugs now. For some reason, someone thought it'd be a good idea to lace fentanyl into nearly every illicit drug there is. And it's so dangerous. Uh, like someone is talking about, there's, there's no longer an experimental stage with drugs. Uh, I've, I've seen so many people lose their life thinking they were taking one substance when actually they were taking Again, I, I thank Brandon for letting me talk. He sent me about 30 emails saying I couldn't talk very long, so I'm going to get out of here. But I, I really appreciate it. Thank you all for being here, and thank you for your interest in recovery. Y'all have a great evening. And Max, I didn't say you, you, you couldn't. I said you shouldn't talk to all. <laughs> you know, and I think he brought that up again. If you think about any of your lives growing up, um, I'm not gonna, I'm 41, so. Um, I can remember back in, during an experimental phase in my life where I was able to, you know, try things here and there and, and live to tell about it. That isn't an option anymore. It is not an option. Uh, these drugs are a hundred, a thousand times more addictive. And if they don't catch you with the, 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 the addictive part, they will kill you. And it does not matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, in, in getting ready for this event, uh, he's from Centerpoint, uh, and we have this thing called the, uh, the, the wall, the back wall. You know, and it's just, you can't help but these, these faces just roll through your mind. These faces of people uh, that you went to treatment with, that you got the opportunity to meet, um, and they're no longer with us. It's, it's, it's tragic. It really is. Um, our next speaker is an alumni uh, of OR. Um, he gets to come up here today and share a very, very personal story. We, we, we'd like to hear things about uh, survival of this epidemic. John Lewis. Hello, everyone. My name is Sean, and I am an alcoholic. I feel like this is a setup. I'm already five foot tall anyway. <laughs> All right. So... Um, my sobriety date is January 18th of 2020, and uh, I was only able to achieve sobriety through great sponsorship, through um, an incredible support group, and I'm only alive today because of Narcan. So, um, and I'm just going to kind of run through this real fast. I got 15 minutes. I'm going to tell you how I got to where I'm at now and what my experience is with overdose. 
So at a very young age, I was involved in an accident. And uh, this was in the, I'm 44 now, this was in the early, uh, in the late 80s. I shattered my elbow. And as you can see, this is as straight as it gets. Uh, it started a long, uh, a long trend of pain management. And uh, I was a teenager, so I was administered my pain pills through my parents. And the, there was one particular time where uh, I took one in the morning, I took one in the afternoon. When I got home from school, there was one particular time I did, I was running late for school. I put that one in the morning in my little pocket and I went to school and uh, I came home and I remember being younger and I was taking antibiotics because I was, I was also asthmatic. And I was told by my mom, you need to double up because you missed your dose that morning, right? So uh, I remember this one particular day, I, uh, I had that one in my pocket and I didn't say nothing to my mom about it. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm five foot six now. So imagine me in high school, you know, I'm a little bitty ass dude. And I get back, I was getting picked on a lot. And uh, I remember coming home and my mom, and, and I had had some trouble at school and my mom said, it's time to take your medication. And I remembered I had that one in my pocket and I didn't say anything to her about it. So I took both of them at the same time. So it was at that very point where I realized one of those pills would cure physical pain, two of them could cure emotional pain. And at that time, I crossed that imaginary line of addiction. Um, this went on for several years, uh, especially when I was able to obtain the prescription myself. And uh, I was able to, uh, to take as many as I want. But see, keep in mind, I'm not like you guys, right? Because I get my stuff from a doctor. I'm not like you all. Uh, I'm not out seeking drug seeking or anything like that until my prescription ran out two weeks early. And I knew the guy down the road took the same thing I did. And then once again, I'm still not like you guys because at least I'm not snorting those pills until I found out you could get eight hours worth of meds in one shot. And then I started snorting them. But one more time, I'm still not like you all because at least it's not heroin. Until I found out heroin was a hell of a lot cheaper. And then I started doing heroin. And the last time, I'm still not like you guys because I'll never shove a needle in my arm. Until I found out you could get twice as high with half the amount. And then I started doing that. Um, I am 44 years old and for 24 years, uh, I have been a jewelry designer. So from the outside looking in, it looks like I got my life together. I'm designing pieces. Uh, I have a, a portfolio full of celebrities. I'm designing all these pieces of jewelry for people. But what people don't know is the backstory is in between my little breaks, I'm running to the bathroom and I'm shooting heroin in my veins. Um, then uh, I became real unemployable real quick. And at this time, I was making great money, and I developed a thousand-dollar-a-day heroin habit. And uh, I lost my job, and I still had the thousand-dollar-a-day heroin habit. So I did what most of us do, and I started committing crimes. And I, get, I got into the system, the revolving system of in and out, in and out. So where my overdoses started was what was shared earlier. Um, I had never overdosed until I tried to get clean. So I would go to uh, a 30-day rehab, and I would get out. And because I didn't work on myself or what the internal problems were, 
um, I would always use again, but I would always think that I could go back to using the same amount that I was using before I lost my tolerance and I would fall out. And when I would fall out, I got hit with Narcan. So Narcan saved my life once. Uh, I didn't learn my lesson. I got a 30 day sanction and uh, I got out, tried to do the same amount again, fell out again. Narcan saved my life twice. On January the 18th, 2020, uh, the judge said, guess what? You're going to fucking Owensboro, oh, sorry. <laughs> You're going to Owensboro Regional Recovery because you are unmanageable in society. And I don't know what unmanageable in society meant at that time, but I do now. And uh, so I was sent to Owensboro Regional Recovery. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, I was able to find a group of people who are just like me. I was able to find out that I was not alone in this battle. And uh, I was able to build a support group. And I latched on to a group of people who were hosting this thing called Kentucky Conference for Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous. And what we did is we brought a conference to Owensboro to show people that you could have fun in recovery. Because I was scared when I got sober that I didn't know what I was gonna do with my time. And I was scared that I was gonna be miserable. You can have fun in recovery. We do goofy stuff in recovery, have a blast. Uh, I'm talking things like skydiving, going to Cedar Point, freaking Kings Island. I mean, we do fun stuff. So I latched on with these guys and um, we started going around talking to people. Um, I've given my lead at a bunch of different places. Um, when we disbanded and uh, Kiki Paul went up to uh, Northern Kentucky, we did not want to let it go. We wanted to keep the message in Owensboro. So we started a meeting in Owensboro called Owensboro Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous. We are a registered meeting. It is my home group. We meet every Wednesday at uh, 8 p.m. So um, I can tell you that uh, when, when I was in active addiction, um, I was extremely scared of the stigma of telling people that I was in active addiction. When I was in active addiction, I was scared of being Narcan because I have heard all kinds of horror stories about it. Had it not been for Narcan, I wouldn't be here right now standing in front of you today telling you that I've spoken at a lot of venues. And because I have lost a lot of good friends to this disease, this is by far the most important place I have ever spoke at. Um, we do recover, man. Thank you guys for having yeah. me. Thank you again, Sean. Uh, you know, he, he drove a long way to come here, and his message is powerful. Um, and we really, really appreciate you taking the time to share this. So uh, please listen. So thank him one more yeah. time. You know, once again, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of debate about Narcan. Narcan enables people, you know, Narcan enables the, the addict. Um, Narcan enables breathing long enough for a person to find treatment. It may not be the kind of treatment that you got or I got, but it enables breathing long enough to allow them another opportunity to find the right path and stay alive and live a better life. It's an amazing thing. You know, it is, it's, it's crazy how working in recovery, you get to meet, again, so many people and, and how it's such a, such a big world, but a small world at the same time. And as I uh, began to work in recovery, we worked together with some programs uh, like the Graves County Exchange Program and the Health Department. 
health department. Um, and I got to talking to her and I, I eventually started to learn, I know these people. I've known these people for a long time, since I was little. Uh, so it is my pleasure to introduce uh, uh, Lauren Carr with the Graves County Health Department, Graves County Exchange. She has a ton of titles. I think she's a council person too. All right, from Graves County. So uh, let's welcome Lauren Carr. Thank you, Brandon, for the introduction. If you all, uh, like you said, my name is Lauren Carr and I run the Graves County Syringe Exchange Program and work in harm reduction regionally. Harm reduction values life, choice, compassion over punishment, stigma, and shame. Harm reduction saves lives. We are meeting individuals where we are, but we are not leaving them there. Some of you all have heard my story, but today I wanted to give you guys a different perspective. I wanted to introduce you to my mother and let, you, let her tell you what this day means to her. My daughter, my sweet daughter, asked me to do this about three or four months ago. I, I've told my son's story a hundred times. Um, but she said, oh, it's for the overdose awareness thing. It's going to be at Noble Park. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe 20, 30 people would be here. And uh, so I kept putting off having to write anything down. Like when I say it, it's, it's one thing that when to actually put the words on paper, it makes it really real. Um, so anyway, I started last night. I started before, but anyway. Uh, my name is Sally Wilson, and uh, Lauren invited me. I've known Brandon since he was 10 years old, and uh, I'm glad our paths crossed again today. Uh, but I need to tell you my story of my son and his addiction and how his addiction led to his overdose. My son's name was Samuel Justin Adams. He was born December 5th in 1983 in Houston, Texas. He was a healthy nine pound baby boy and he made me a mother for the first time in my life. I knew then when I first held him in my arms that I would do whatever it took to protect him. Little did I know then though that there was one thing I couldn't protect him from and that was himself and his addiction. Justin's early years were like so many ch children growing up. It was good, he was adored by his father, he was loved beyond measure by me. And we lived in Houston when, when, when his dad lost his job in the oil field. There was a big crash in 1983-84. Lost a really good job. We decided to move to Gilbertsville to live, with my, live close to my mom and dad. Uh, we made it for a while. He ended up having to drive a truck long distance, which is really no way to raise a child. Um, when Justin was 15 months old, I was uh, found out that I was pregnant with his brother. And as hard as my, his father and I tried to make it, he wasn't this, he just wasn't ready to be a full-time dad. We decided to separate permanently and Justin had bonded with him. And I know he loved Justin and Zachary, but he couldn't make a living here in Western Kentucky, so he decided to move back to Houston. So I believe we moved in with my mom and dad, and I believe that's where Justin's abandonment issues started. 
you know, a lot of times they'll say that a child goes through a traumatic event and that leads to their addiction. I think was, that was just the first building block of this addiction. It was for the best that we did this. Justin thrived in the loving environment my parents provided. He was happy and healthy. He was a slow walker because he was so tall, but he was a fast talker. You could carry on a conversation with him when he was about two years old. He could recite the entire Night Before Christmas book and knew it word for word. They both literally were my entire world. Zachary was about six months old when I met a man and we dated for several months, fell in love, got engaged, and were married in July of 1986. Everything was really great in the beginning. He and his entire family treated the boys like they were their own. Justin and Zachary felt the same about all of them. I knew he had an alcohol problem when we met, but he had remained sober the entire time we dated, going to meetings, doing everything that he needed to do to stay sober. So of course I thought my great love for him would change him in the end, and it did for a while. Then on the plane, on our way to our honeymoon, he had three drinks before we landed. I told myself, hey, he's just happy, we're celebrating, and I forgot you know, the red flags that were popping up. Early on in our marriage is when I noticed a change on how Justin was being treated. Just little things at first, snide comments, withholding affection, always blaming him for something, excessive disciplining, which I did not agree with. And so it created a situation where I was continuously having to defend him. And that led to arguing and fighting in front of him and his brother. I was the one that took the brunt of it. But I swore that I would protect him no matter what. Justin still managed to thrive in school. He was a good student. He learned everything that was put in front of him. He could look at something once or hear it once and remember it. He had straight A's all through elementary school. When he graduated, he had been on the honors roll all five years. He received the President's Scholar Award. And he loved playing basketball. He was 23 inches when he was born. And when he graduated from fifth grade, he was right at six foot. He wore a size 14 shoe. He was the center. He was slow. He was big. He could tell you every NBA player that played. Michael Jordan, of course, was his favorite and their stats. He was always protective of his brother and then his little sister that was born in 1989. When he started the sixth grade, he tried out for a basketball team. It was cut by a coach that was about five foot six and thought that he was way too slow to be on his team, way too big. So he went from being the tallest player at six foot on the team that would normally score between 20 and 25 points a game, sometimes the only scorer, to being told he just wasn't good enough. And I think that was the second building block in his addiction. It devastated him, his confidence plummeted during this time, and the abuse from his stepdad was escalating. I think it was the beginning of a long road that I know he didn't chose to go down, and I would never have chosen it for him to travel. He started smoking marijuana, I'm sure to escape the toxic environment at home. His grades started dropping and he started doing stupid stuff at school and around the house just to get attention because negative tension is better than no attention at all. Things got pretty bad and I finally filed for divorce in 1998 when the physical abuse got to the point that I ended up in the emergency room. I could not take the chance that it would be one of my children that would be there next. So I was a single mom, then with three children, trying my best to repair the damage that had been done 
from the toxic environment we all lived in. He continued to use through high school, but you know, it's one of those things you bury your head in the sand. And I didn't think it was anything that he couldn't stop if he wanted. When he was 18 and out of high school, he started working for a barge company. And I was just, my prayers are answered. You know, he wasn't gonna go to college. He got a good jo job on the barge and was doing really good. 30 days on, 30 days off. I'm sure a lot of you know the routine. About two years after that, he fell on the barge and hurt his back really bad. So of course they sent him to a pain management clinic here in Paducah and they prescribed Loratab for him. And of course, like everyone else that takes him, he got addicted. He continued on those for a couple of years and I don't really know when he started experimenting with something else and I don't really know what all he tried. Uh, it's probably when the prescription ran out and he couldn't get it anymore. I was very, so very frustrated with him because I, I remember telling him, Justin, you know, you're strong enough. If you want to kick this, you know, if you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for me, do it for your grandparents, do it for your brothers and sisters, you know? Uh, and he would try and he would get clean and then, you know, there would be a trigger and he would be back in it. I was so frustrated with him. I tried tough love. I tried, uh, you know, making excuses every time we were supposed to go somewhere and he didn't show up or he showed up late and he was sweating, uh, you know, I was also an enabler because I would do things for him. I mean, all, you know, I gave him anything he wanted. Uh, he couldn't even make a phone call to the electric company. He'd say, mom, I need you to call him. You know, I'm too nervous to call him. And it was a big joke in our family. I remember the day he pleaded with me, he said, mom, I really need to get clean. This is killing me. He said, there's a methadone clinic in Paducah I'd like you to take me to. And of course, I could not get him any treatment through a recovery center because I didn't have, he was 22 at the time. He couldn't be on, he couldn't be on my insurance. So I take him to the methadone clinic and it was $800 for him to be seen and get on that medicine. I didn't have $800. You know, I was paying an $800 house payment and three kids in high school, middle school, grade school, and I just didn't have it. I didn't want to ask my mom and dad for help because I didn't want to admit that he had a problem. He begged for it, and you know, it's one of those things that they weren't in, there was not resources at that time for people to get help that had substance abuse problems. Or if there was, we didn't know about it. Fast forward to 2009, I'm gonna to try to make this as short as I can. He met a girl and started dating her, and I think they were in love. Then she found out she was pregnant and told him that, you know, the child was his. So they lived together for a while and the baby was born in 2010. Uh, I remarried a man in 2010 that I had been dating for 10 years. Some of my best memories were of that night. I had all my family and about 200 guests at our farm. The last video I have of Justin and the last picture I have him and his brother and sister are from that wedding. This is Justin here on the left. That's my beautiful daughter, and that's my other son, Zachary. The last video I have was from that night, laughing and dancing. My heart was so full. I was so proud of all three of my children. Justin was a fantastic dancer. He could dance to anything. He wrote music. He wrote. He rapped. He, 
he, there were so many more things about him that were good besides his substance abuse problem. And that's what I always tried to dwell on, not the negative. He ended up, the, material, the maternal grandmother ended up having to get custody of the baby because they were both to the point where they couldn't take care of the child. Justin finally seemed to be getting a little bit better when he got a new job with a new barge flying and I knew he was clean because you have to test clean to be able to get on the boat. He had been on the boat for about six weeks and when he got, he got off on a Wednesday night, that Thursday, September 22nd, he came over with his dad to my house to pick up his car that I had been borrowing while he was on the barge. He looked great. He smiled, he was tan, he had filled out, he didn't have that gaunt look to him he just, he was beautiful. I was so happy to see him. He gave me a big hug and told me he was going to go to Nashville the next day. I said, Justin, he said, um, I got these big bucks from the barge. You know, we're going to go, we're going to go party. I said, listen, you better be careful. You've got a lot to live for now. You have a little girl that loves you. You have a girl, a girlfriend that, you know, you need to help take care of and you need to help raise that daughter. He assured me he would gave me a big hug told me how much he loved me, and that was the last time I saw him. The next morning, he started receiving texts from his girlfriend that she had been cheating on him while he was on the boat with one of his best friends. So, of course, that triggered him again into addiction. He decided to medicate himself and deal with the pain the only way he knew how. He texted another old friend and purchased six fentanyl patches at $50 a pop from him and started on his way to go pick up the friend to go to Nashville. Apparently he took one of the patches and was getting gas in Livingston County somewhere and sat down on the curb and passed out. Somebody that was standing there called the ambulance and said they had, he had OD'd at the gas station. They arrived, they gave him Narcan on the way to the hospital and were able to revive him. In an overdose situation, and I'm glad to hear today that it's totally different than it was 11 years ago, the police are called and the police are supposed to follow the ambulance to wherever they take the patient. No police officer followed the ambulance. When they got to the hospital, the hospital is supposed to report this overdose to the police, fill out their own report, and none of that was done. They ask him, where'd you get all these patches? Oh, they're my dad's. So they call his dad to pick him up and they give the patches back to him. Didn't check a prescription, nothing. I never got a call from Justin or my ex-husband telling me what had happened. He takes him back home, gives him back the patches, and then Justin leaves again for Nashville with his friend. Of course, they go downtown, they get a big hotel room at the Hilton or somewhere. They go to all the clubs and they end up at Coyote Ugly. At this time, he, ran, he runs into a girl that I don't know if he knew her or met her there or what, but he asked her if she had any Xanax. She said, yeah, I got Xanax. So Later on in the evening, she gets up on the bar to dance at Coyote Ugly because that's what they do. He sees her purse, he takes the purse, he leaves Coyote Ugly, he takes the Xanax out and he throws the purse in a dumpster. Then he returns to Coyote Ugly. That's when she saw him and she sees that her purse is missing. So the cops were called. Long story short, four hours later, he was sitting in the cop car for a period of between three and five hours. The friend, they had to check the camera to see that, make sure his friend was not uh, part of the burglary. They kept, he kept telling the police, there's something wrong with him. He keeps nodding off there. I don't know what's all going on. I don't know what's going on. He keeps waking him up. Eventually they take him 
and book him in the Nashville jail. They put him in what we call the drunk tank or general pop with everybody else and he kept trying to call his dad to tell him what happened. But they would not answer the phone in my grand at his grandparents' house because they saw it was a call from the jail. They ended up putting him in a solitary cell because a girl and him were having words about who needed the phone more. They are supposed to do a well check when somebody's in solitary and there is a, you know, drug, if they've had alcohol, drugs, whatever, every 15 minutes. Some of the reports that I read say they did and some of the reports said it was longer. Either way, they found him unresponsive and started CPR, called the ambulance and rushed him to the hospital, but it was too late. The next days are a blur to me. I remember my daughter, my husband, excuse me, my college roommate who was visiting, coming to my work and telling me what happened. I remember the look on one of my coworkers' face when I walked up steps to the office before they told me. I really thought something had happened to my dad because he had been having heart problems. Never once thinking that it was Justin. My world as I knew it was over and I took my first steps on this long, hard journey known as grief. I remember the days waiting for them to bring him home, picking out his clothes, taking them to the funeral, going down the steps to the room where they had him and I had to identify his body. These are all things a mother should never have to do. These are the images that stick with me that I try to erase. But can't. And then the next morning after he passed, my husband and I were in the living room and we had the news on, not paying attention. And he says, Oh my God. And I said, What? He goes, They've got Justin's picture up on the news. And I'm thinking, Oh my, everybody knows his secret. Everybody knows our secret. It was horrible. We finally made it to the funeral and it was beautiful. There was over 500 people that came and signed the guest book. From the music that we picked out, the Averitt brothers coming home, can't remember who was by. It was all, it was not appropriate. A lot of people said for the wedding, for the funeral, but it was his music that he liked to hear and that's what we played. From the heartbreaking eulogies that his cousin and my husband spoke that I had written and all of the many friends and family that paid their respects. So many friends came up and told me that they had a loved one that they were worried about. And five different mothers came up and said that they had brought two daughters and three different sons to rehab that day because they knew what had happened to Justin and he was a good friend. It was the only thing that got me through that night and the next day, knowing that I was not alone in the struggle. The next year was filled with so many tears I lost count, many late night trips to the cemetery where I would just go talk to him on my way home from work, police reports, talking to the police, trying to hold somebody responsible. We had the text messages, who sold them, how much, toxicology report, finding what it was that he actually died from. It was a combination of fentanyl and Xanax combined. So literally he just went to sleep and quit breathing. 
speaking to lawyers, trying to get affidavits on what happened at the jail. But unfortunately, nobody cared about a person at this time who suffered from this horrible disease. No one wanted to admit that they were wrong, and literally everyone he had contact with the last two days of his life let him fall through the cracks because he wasn't worth saving to them. In closing, when you lose someone very close to you, a child, a parent, a close friend, a spouse, you look for any signs that they may send you. Some people look for red cardinals. Some people look for butterflies. Some people see different signs. My sign is the number 22. It's my birth date. And in the last 11 years that he's passed, this number 822, which is my birthday, keeps popping up. I'll be driving down the road, look at the radio, it's 822. I'll be on the TV looking at Good Morning America or whatever, it's 822. I walk by the stove, it's 822. So the last year I started documenting all these instances that it popped up. And just in the last year, I had 60, over 60 pictures on my phone from, like I said, the stove, the radio, billboards, random places. The last day I talked and hugged my son was September 22nd. He died on September 24th, 2011. In 22 days, it will be 11 years since the last day I talked to him and was able to receive a hug and I love you, mom. 11 plus 11 is 22, which is the year, and my birth date is 822. So knowing that I'm telling his story tonight, 11 years after his death in 2011, and this year is 2022, I know I have his blessing to share his many heartaches and our family's heartbreak to shine a light on this epidemic in hopes that not another family has to endure what we've had to go through. I also want to let my daughter know how proud I am. She has turned our tragedy into her life's work, helping other families and individuals navigate this horrible disease and hopefully save another person from overdosing. Please know also that your brother is beyond proud of you and the change you're making for so many. Thank you for coming. And let me share my story. in front of you today in awe, even though we are here as a remembrance of those that uh, we have lost, I feel connected to each and every one of you because I know that you know the pain that we have felt. Ten years ago, I was ashamed to say that my brother died of an overdose. The stigma, the small talk kept me silent. Ten years ago, local news outlets announced my brother's sensational death by sharing his mugshot before we even picked up his body. Ten years ago, we were laughed out of a law enforcement office because we thought, well, maybe we should give them this information about this drug that's 50 to 100 times more stronger than morphine, this drug that's now a household name called fentanyl. Um, but my brother was just a junkie. Ten years ago, I was lost, trying to cope, trying to get justice for my brother and hit every barrier and roadblock you could even imagine. I felt hopeless that my brother's memory would just die and that he would just become another overdose statistic. 10 years later, I will share my brother's story any and every opportunity that I can get. 
just because of the way my brother died does not define who he was and how he lived. People who use drugs are no less than others. Um, they are human. 10 years later, we are having overdose awareness events all over this country, and that is being represented by local, national uh, news outlets. 10 years later, we are working with law enforcement to provide strategies to help people in active addiction, badges of hope, angel initiative, quick response team. 10 years later, I have found my passion and my purpose, and I am at peace. He might not be here with us today, but I know that he lives inside me. Like my mom said, I see signs all the time and he lets me know that it's okay and that we might not have got the justice that we thought we did, but he didn't die in vain. 10 years later, we have came a long way, but there's still so much more to go. In sum, in my call to action is we first, we cannot fight an enemy that we don't understand. Learn about substance use disorder, talk about it, share your story, let people know that recovery is possible. Stop being in denial and thinking that it's not happening in your community, because it is. Be a catalyst of change in your own community. Understand that, stigma, understand that shame and stigma is not going to help anyone out of addiction. Adding judgment is not going to change anybody's behavior. It's not our place to judge why somebody uses drugs. We have not walked in their shoes. We do not know what they have been through, but treating people like people, like a human being and showing them care and compassion, that will make a difference. The opposite of addiction is connection. Provide those connections to those suffering. Give them a lifeline of hope. Lastly, we have lost too many people to this disease. Understand harm reduction. Like Caitlin said, dead people don't recover and fentanyl is being found in anything and everything. A one-time use, a return to use, or a relapse can cause a death. Carry Narcan on you at all times. You never know when you might need it or you could save somebody's life. In sum, thank you guys and we're fixing to do the balloon release, right? Sorry. All right, folks, thank you so much for your attention. Let's gather, let's grab some balloons. There's, there's plenty out there. If we don't have enough, we have some behind us. But let's gather in the parking lot as we remember those that we have lost. And as you continue to do that, look around you at the smiles. Those are faces of recovery. Those are people that have made it. I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah.
strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to the kitchen chair, she broke your throne and she cut your hair, and from your lips she drew the someone you know is struggling with addiction or in recovery and needs guidance. Speak with Turning Point's team of peer support specialists by calling 270 You are not alone, and we are proof that recovery is possible.